So let us now hear from God's Word, 2 Chronicles, chapter 6, verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant Praise before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, By all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each 
whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray toward this city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. They sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas. Maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. Well, may the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our Father in heaven. As we read Solomon's prayer, you gave him great wisdom. And you described the Christian's life, how, Lord, we want to serve you, but yet we fall short. We need to come to you in prayer and supplication. But, Lord, you also, as you have stated, you are a faithful God, a God to forgive, a God to restore. And, Lord, we just thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. And we ask, Lord, that you hear our prayers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, the title of our message this morning is, is More Than a Mantra, and it is based on 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 to 15. The words of verse 14 are especially familiar to us, and I thought on this uh, Independence Day weekend that we could consider them together. These are the words of our text this morning. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. The Lord bless this text to us this morning. So this morning we are taking up a text that's on the minds of many people in uh, the nation at this time. Indeed, we are blessed to have a vice president who has called the land to utilize 2 Chronicles 7.14 so that we may pray for America and surely this uh, anniversary weekend when we celebrate 244 years of the United States, we are reminded that it is given to us as the Lord's people to do exactly that, to lead the nation in praying for the nation. Hence, the title of this message this morning, More Than a Mantra, because as with so many uh, familiar texts in the Scriptures, we can repeat them almost parrot fashion off the top of our minds. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land, done. But I think the vice president knows, as a Christian, and I think we know too, in our innermost minds, that the situation in which we find ourselves, not only in the United States today, but in the Western world, and I include my home country, is a time in which there is a special responsibility upon the people of God. We have seen of late people gather together to break the windows of our city, to set buildings alight. We have seen in the news people gathering together to pull down statues, and it's almost immaterial what good the person in the statue has done in the land. A perfect record is required. And the call of God comes to us this morning to come together with the weapons that God has given to us, which are not the weapons of the flesh, but the weapons of the Holy Spirit to the pulling down of strongholds. And chief among those weapons are the preaching of the Word of God and the prayers of God's people. And so we're going to take up this morning this subject of revival and the need we have as the church of God of being revived by the power of God so that we may be restored from our weakness. But as we take up this theme, and one of the things I've been doing during this COVID-19 is joining together with three other books, three other brothers to write a book on revival, is to note four ironies which come to our minds as we come to this subject of revival, because it's a subject that we speak of a lot, and we delve into history to see what God has done, the great works of God in history. When it comes actually to understanding what the Bible teaches about revival, we're somewhat lagging behind. So as we approach this subject this morning, I want us to consider four ironies. What is an irony? An irony is something that we would not expect. And the first irony is a terminological irony, and it is this that the text, which has become such a mantra for revival, 2 Chronicles 7.14, has no mention of revival. In fact, as I've mentioned already, when we come to the Scriptures, the noun revival is one of those words that's not found in the Scriptures, like Trinity, like sacrament, like providence. 
And yet we use the term revival because it encapsulates something of the biblical teaching. And when we come to the scriptures, we are helped because we find the verb to revive and we find the participle reviving. And you will find in your handout five references in which the verb or the participle is used. Ezra 9, Psalm 85, Isaiah 57, Hosea 6, and Habakkuk 3. So whereas then the core meaning of the verb to revive means to cause or to make alive, it can also mean to restore. And when we try and find out what the Bible means about a certain theme, we not only look at the specific terms the Bible uses, but we also look at them in their context. For sometimes the context updates the actual term that's used. And when we do that, we find that revival also has reference to the rebuilding of the work of God. So I want to introduce you then to what theologians call this morning the word-concept fallacy. And the fallacy runs like this, that a subject matter is only in a certain place if the specific term is used. And so we are using 2 Chronicles 7.14 this morning because although the term revival is not found there, nor the verb, nor the participle, the essence in part of revival is found in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. And so we are avoiding what is called the word concept fallacy. And then the second irony as we come to this subject is a theological irony. You see, across the land this morning... And we thank God for this. There are many, many people coming to this text for their hope for the nation at this time. But for the reality of most of the people, I suggest, who are coming to this text as their hope to keep their heads above depression about what's happening in the United States today, there is this irony that they do not believe the church is in existence in the Old Testament. They believe the church was only born on the day of Pentecost. And so you have this tension, people coming to the Old Testament in particular, to draw their strength, to draw their encouragement about the revival of the church, who don't actually believe the church was in existence in Old Testament times. But in our tradition of theology, we believe that on the day of Pentecost, the church was not born, the church came of age. The church was in existence under the Old Testament, and that's why we are legitimate in going to the Old Testament to say, what does God have to say about the revival of his church today? And that comes out in this famous text. If my people who are called by my name, that's a reference to the church. How do we know that? Because the church, the word church, its Greek term, ekklesia, means exactly that, the called out ones. Ek, a preposition, meaning from or out of. Klesia, from the verb kalio, meaning the called out ones. And so even back into the Old Testament, God was calling out his people. And God says to Solomon here and to the people of God, if my people who are called or called out by my name. In other words, the church, if we pray, then I will hear from heaven. And then we come to a spiritual irony. 
that there are others of us closer to our tradition who believe the church was existence in the Old Testament, but they argue that there's no such thing as revival in the Old Testament. Revival is only mentioned in the Old Testament in terms of prophecy looking forward to the New Testament. But that is not the case. Because you can go, for instance, to Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again, O Lord? The psalmist is saying, this isn't the first time we've needed revival. You heard our call to worship this morning from Isaiah 57, verse 15. The high and the lofty God who inhabits eternity dwells with those who have a, whole, a humble and a lowly spirit to revive the hearts of the contract ones. Isaiah doesn't say, or the Lord does not say through Isaiah, now you have to wait several centuries, in fact, eight centuries until the church will be revived because Pentecost hasn't come. No, there is running through the scriptures this development of the theme of the church, but running parallel with it, this unfolding of the theme of revival. And yes, the New Testament says more about the revival of the church under the terminology of the filling of the Spirit. But the Bible does not say less than is found here in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And so we come to the fourth irony, an historical irony. When we come to the reigns of David and Solomon, we are at the golden era of Israel's history. Things are going wonderfully well. What has happened? Well, in the first place, David has come to the throne. What's the first thing he's done? He's united the houses of Saul and the house of David. You remember how Psalm 133 begins. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He's reflecting on the fact that his reign began with this reunification of the people of God. And from there, David oversaw the expansion of the land. And then when you come into the reign of uh, Solomon, you come to the prosperity of the nation. David expanded the nation, but Solomon kept hold of it by building fortresses and by political alliances, etc. And then, right at the heart of Solomon's reign here, you have the privilege of the nation. What was Israel's unique privilege? They were unique in that they alone could sense the nearer presence of God. And this theme also unfolds throughout Scripture. So you have the, the tabernacle, a moving tent, and the sacrifices are made. The cloud of God's Shekinah glory descends at the door of the tabernacle. But now something significant is happening here. We don't know what happened to the tabernacle, but the temple is finally being built, a fixed structure. And as Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, we read in the opening verses of chapter 7, God's glory is manifested again. And yet, it is at this high point in the life of Israel that Solomon opens up in this glorious prayer before the Lord, and he's acknowledging God for who he is. But then he says, but we know that sin is in the heart of everyone. We know that despite we're in the gold, this golden era, we're going to sin. We're going to fall short of God's glory. And when we sin, Lord, have mercy on us. So this is the historical irony. And since revival then 
does not perfect the church. It's meant that some people, some Christians, have become very cynical about revival. Who wants revival? We can live without revival. Well, because revival causes as many problems as it solves. So don't care about revival. And yet, when you look at the history in Scripture of God's people, and when you look at the history of the church subsequent to the completion of Scripture, revival is a major tool that God uses to ensure that his church reaches the last day when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, after which the church will never sin again. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we emphasize revival not to subvert our eyes from the importance of Christ returning again, but precisely because in a day like our own, God uses the revival of the church to ensure that the church survives, the church is sustained, and the church goes on. And that is why we focus upon this subject today. So we pick up the narrative then in chapter 7, verses 11 to 12. Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So in the three verses that follow then, verses 13 through 15, we notice three matters pertinent to revival, and the first of which is the pain of revival. When I shut up the heavens, verse 13, so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. You see, there are others of us who love the theme of revival, and it's understandable that we do. We love the theme of revival because of its phenomena. I come from a land where we had the last major revival, 1904-1905, where in a piece of land that can fit between Washington and Philadelphia, we saw in a small population 100,000 people converted in 10 months when God swept through the land. And it creates this, this romantic aura about what God can do. We want to see our churches full again. We want to see society turn back from the direction which it's headed. And we focus there on what is really the fruit of revival. But the biblical understanding of revival begins with God's restoration of his people. And I don't think we can realistically hope to see the United States or the United Kingdom transformed by the power of God's Spirit until we see the Christian church transformed by that same power. And so notice two realities here in the background of verse 13. First of all, Israel's breakage of the covenant. The Lord as initiator of the covenant is ever faithful to his covenant. And Solomon's prayer acknowledges as much. If you go back to chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Notice how Solomon begins. He begins with the faithfulness of God. O oh Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. 
who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servants. You see, this is the God whom we worship. This is the God whom we follow. The God who initiates this covenant, this bond with his people. And although he condescends to enter into this covenant with us, he never breaks the covenant. But even in this golden era, Solomon recognizes that God's people are going to break the covenant. And so consistently throughout this prayer in chapter 6, he says, if, 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 you can look at verse 22, look at verse 24, look at verse 36, if your people sin, if your people sin, if your people sin, Solomon might as well have said, when your people sin, when your people sin, when your people sin, because we are covenant breakers. And it is because... The church has not reached the state of perfection that it will have in the afterlife. That Solomon owns the right of the Lord to chasten his people. So we notice how the if in the prayer relating to God's people changes to the when in referring to God's response. Go back with me to chapter 6 verses 26 to 27. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. You see... We cannot be selective in the way in which we use this text and say, this is the text upon which we're going to hang our hopes for a revival in America. But then go on to say, well, of course, the church, the new Israel, we don't break the covenant. So we'll take this part of the text, but not that part of the text. Brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do that we break the covenant Every week, either by entering into legalism where we try to supplant the gospel by our own works righteousness or saying, well, it's all of grace and so therefore it doesn't matter how I live. And I'm not going to itemize this morning all the ways in which the church today breaks the covenant. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict me this morning, to convict you this morning, if we are breaking the covenant with God, at the heart of which is disobedience to the will of God, that he is well able to bring that to our attention this morning. Not only do we have the law of God written on our consciences, we have the word of God in our hands. And we know by the Holy Spirit directing our thoughts, touching our hearts, impacting our wills, when and where and how we've broken the covenant. But I put it to you today about the second reality that we are experiencing in the land today, the curses of the covenant upon the church. Notice verse 13, chapter 7. When I shut up the heavens... So there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among 
my people. The Lord here is confirming Solomon's belief in the Lord's right to chasten his people. And that belief came from the Lord's curses revealed 500 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There are basically three of them that Solomon mentions and the Lord affirms. The first is the drought. When I shut up the heavens. And uh, Solomon mentions this in verse 26 of his prayer in chapter 6. But to go back to Deuteronomy 28, what do we find? The great comparison between the blessings of the covenant and the curses of the covenant. The blessing of the covenant, verse 12. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain to your land in its seasons and bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That stays a blessing. Verse 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come on you until you are destroyed. That's the curse of the covenant. And then not only is there drought in the land, then the locusts are sent and they destroy the harvest. And you can read of that in chapter 6 verse 28 here in Solomon's prayer and again in Deuteronomy 28 verses 37 to 38. And then he mentions the pestilence. Whereas the first two chastenings affected the ground, affected the harvest. The third chastening affects their persons. Again, Solomon's prayer, verse 28 of chapter 6. And again, Deuteronomy 28, verses 21 to 22. Again, I ask you to read Deuteronomy 28 when you get home. Well, you say, well, how are we facing the curses of the covenant today? And bearing in mind that this text has primary reference to the church and not to the nation, let me give you some illustrations of how the heavens have been shut up. Dear congregation, when was the last time we saw somebody baptized as an adult believer in this place? Oh, we delight as Presbyterians to baptize infants. But that's just the start. You know, I preached about a thousand sermons at Seventh Reformed Church. And in 10 years, I think I baptized three adults. I give praise to God for each one of those. But three souls converted under a thousand sermons? And we say the heavens are not shut up. Oh, I thank God two of them were born in Iran, born and brought up as Muslims. One had done her time, I believe, in prison. And we thank God and we rejoice, but part of the reason we rejoice was because it was so rare. I ask you to consider whether God has not imposed the curses of the covenant upon the church in America. Not uniformly, but in reality. And then think about the locusts coming in, destroying the harvest, nothing to eat. And we have become so accepting of people not being converted. We've become so accepting of people teaching what is other than what's in the Word of God. In some of our megachurches today, you cannot mention sin. You cannot mention Satan. You cannot mention anything negative that's found in the Word of God. And we have reduced the preaching of the Word of God, which is God's voice speaking through His Word. 
and asking ourselves, how did God get the glory by the way in which I worshipped this morning into what have I got out of the ministry? What self-help did I get? How was I encouraged to believe that God's will for my life is that I be permanently healthy and permanently wealthy? The locusts have been destroying the harvest of God's word. And as a result, the pestilence has come. How many people who grew up in the Christian church are this day dying in their sins? Books are being written by how many of our younger generation have left the church and are probably involved in some of the antics going on in our nation today. I was mixing with a brother recently and he was lamenting as a man coming towards the end of his days. Where are his grandchildren at? Who grew up in the church. One grandson living with his boyfriend in another part of America. Another coming home and saying, you still go into that church? They don't love one another. Another one coming home saying, I'm not interested in it. Books are written as to where is the younger generation gone? Already gone would be one of them. Unchristian would be another. People who once even professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now saying, I want, I want a ceremony whereby I can celebrate the fact that I'm no longer a Christian, where I can supposedly de-Christianize. You see, brothers and sisters, we have to come to terms with the fact if we are to know God's reviving in our land, that the pain of revival is this, the drought has come, the famine has come, the locusts, and the pestilence has come. And so there's a whole generation out there saying, let's turn upon the Christian church because it does us no good whatsoever. And so let's look secondly then at the process of revival, verse 14a. The Lord seeks not to run his people into the ground, and I ought to say, nor am I seeking to run God's people into the ground. But he wants God's people to turn back to him for new days. And he teaches us here not that we can conjure up revival. If I come along or somebody else comes along and whips you, this is what you do. Like flagellation to get a revival from God. That's not what he's saying. What the Lord is saying, here are some of the evidences that God is already beginning to revive his people. And the first is that we humble ourselves. God intends every successive chastening to accomplish this. Uh, you see, it's possible, and I think we are learning this, that the Christian church has been humbled in our land. But the evidence would suggest we are yet to be humbled and that we are yet to understand the earnestness of the situation that is facing us. So the Lord does not let up his chastenings until we are so humbled. Skip forward a few chapters and we see evidence of this in chapter 12. Egypt plunders Jerusalem. And then verses 6 and 7, Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not 
be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. And so we need, brothers and sisters, to embrace this truth that the way down in our own estimation is the way up. There is no recapturing of America as the Christian church unless we come down in our estimation. You see, many people have good intentions, don't they? I trust I do too. But the Lord teaches us that the ones he revives are the ones of a lowly heart, contrite spirit, so that we jettison the cultural mantra, we can do it, yes we can. There's not going to be a revival in America if the Christian church keeps chanting, we can do it, yes we can. Forget revival, that's not going to happen. And nor will revival happen if we say, well, we just need to get the voters out in November. We have just witnessed how impoverished that thinking is. Well, you see, it's not about the president. It's, it's filling the Supreme Court. If we get all the people in the Supreme Court, we're fine. We're fine. And what has God allowed? God has allowed conservatives to enter the Supreme Court not to do what we hoped they would do. You see, it's possible, isn't it, to be a conservative and have Judeo-Christian values, but not to have the spine to follow through on it. And so here we are saying, oh, well, what do we do in November then? Uh, uh, we can vote in uh, the president that we want, we can get the people on the Supreme Court, and then they might not do what we want them to do. And I believe God is speaking through that to say, listen, it's time for the Christian church to stop relying on human factors. To come to the end of ourselves and to say, you alone, O oh Lord, can meet with the church. And you alone, O oh Lord, can use the church to recover this nation. Humility. Secondly, prayer. Prayer is how humility shows itself. The prayer the Lord has in mind begins with the sins of the church. Our inability to turn back the world. When I was growing up in Wales, we admired America for many reasons. But one of the things we were amazed at, that 40% of Americans said they were born again. But we had a sneaking feeling in our minds that a good deal of that percentage didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And now I've heard more recently that of a population of over 300 million in America, 30 million are claiming to be Christians. That's 10% of the population on year and year about. And yet we are told by the politicians that 2% of the country, that's about 6 million people, or just over 6 million people, are running the country by their mobbery, telling us what we need to do and what we need not to do. And we'll betide you if you don't have a perfect record. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it then, if the Christian church, this seismic block in the nation... <coughs> has not been able to stop over the last years some of the things that have happened which go against our consciences, not only ours as Christians, but consciences of those who are created in the image of God. And I put it to you, brothers and sisters, it is because we are spiritually powerless. We pray personally. Our congregation is a very prayerful congregation. We practice what the Bible teaches about weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. But that's only part of the ministry of prayer. 
Many of you, I know, are burdened for the way things are in the land at this time. But have we transitioned in prayer to balance maintenance prayers with frontline prayers? Notice how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. It precedes our maintenance issues. Brothers and sisters, we're on the way to heaven. We don't need some of our illnesses solved. They're going to be solved. We're on the way to heaven. But we're facing a world that's on the way to a lost eternity. And this text encourages us to balance out our prayer lives. But not only to balance out maintenance and frontline prayers, but to balance out personal prayer and corporate prayer. One of the reasons why the Bible doesn't speak much about corporate prayer is that it was a given. Here we are at the dedication of the temple. But even after Jesus had died upon the cross, had risen again, ascended up on high, poured out the Holy Spirit, what's the first thing we read of in Acts 3? The disciples went to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray together. But we have imported our Western individualism into the reading of the text whereby we lopsidedly say, well, Jesus said, <clears throat> when you go into your closet, <clears throat> shut the door, pray to your father in secret, and when he sees you in secret, he will reward you openly. As if that is all that the Bible has to say about prayer. It's me and my God. That is a wonderful half-truth. It was at the place of prayer that Lydia had her heart opened. When Jesus gave us the pattern prayer, he didn't teach us to pray, My Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, give me my daily bread. No, our Father who is in heaven. Let me tell you a little bit about history. It may come as a surprise to you. This is part of your heritage if you were Dutch. That it was a Dutchman who was used of God at the beginning of the first great awakening in America. When the massive prayer revival came in 1857 in New York, it began in a Dutch reformed church. A man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere, not a minister, a businessman, he sent out 20,000 tracts to invite people in days of darkness to come and to pray together. Five people turned up apart from himself. So they prayed together. He said, next week, we'll meet again. Bring a friend. 20 of them turned up. Next week, bring a friend. 40 of them turned up. Within several months, they had 3,000 people praying together for the land. And before long, they were baptizing 20,000 people a week. Don't say, as I've heard some say, well, you see, we don't pray together because it's Pentecostal. No, we don't pray together because we're selectively reading the Bible. Thirdly, we seek God's face. What's the difference between prayer and seeking God's face? Well, prayer is confession of the sins of the church. 
seeking God's face is, well, God, what are you going to do about it? On our watch, so much has happened, and we cannot turn it about, but what are we going to do? David says in Psalm 11, verse 3, when the foundations be destroyed, what are the righteous going to do? And the answer comes back, we're going to preach and we're going to pray. We're going to witness too. Listen to Samuel Bounds, who wrote a book called The Weapon of Prayer. If we propose to disciple all nations, destroy idolatry, crush the rugged and defiant forces of Islam, and overcome and destroy the tremendous forces of evil now opposing the kingdom of God in this world, brave men, true men, praying men, afraid of nothing but God, are the kind needed just now. There will be no smiting the forces of evil, no lifting of the degraded hordes of paganism to light and eternal life by any but by praying men. All others are merely playing at religion, make-believe soldiers with no armor, no ammunition, who are absolutely helpless in the face of a wicked world. And that depicts where the church is at right now. Absolutely helpless to confront effectively what has happened in the land. Because we gave up exercising our dependence upon God by calling upon his name. And then, fourthly, we turn from our wicked ways. The language of turning is the language of repentance. This comes out again in Solomon's prayer in chapter 6, verses 36 to 40. In other words, we don't appropriate an emotional-driven view of prayer. But revival and reformation go hand in hand. We cannot expect God to revive his church until we are ready to be obedient. But in being obedient, we need to pray that God would come and bless that obedience. Well, time has gone this morning, but let me just say briefly about the promises of revival, verse 14b. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land. Basically, the Lord is responding specifically to what Solomon's prayed, that the Lord would hear, that the Lord would forgive, that the Lord would heal. In other words, the Lord honors Solomon for being gospel-centered. You see, revival is not, well, we have the gospel, and then we need some phenomenal extra aside from the gospel in order to do what the gospel can accomplish. No, revival is a heightening awareness of what God accomplishes through the gospel. And as the Holy Spirit broods over his church, convicting us of the gravity of our sins as the people of God, sinning against the light, and our eyes are turned to God, we have a fresh view of Christ a fresh appreciation and forgiveness. And when we know what it is to be forgiven, we are more inclined to go out into the world and say, we have good news for you, great news for you. And that is why revival is so often consistently followed up by awakening. That the things that we treasure in here spill out over the walls of the church onto society. And so God says that he would heal 
his land. At the end of the droughts, the famine and deaths in the church, renewed blessings of the covenant. What do they look like? Well, they begin with the church. The windows of heaven are opened. Covenant children flocking into communicant membership. Some who were in communicant membership discovered that they weren't actually saved. Coming to understand what it is to rely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church going out saying, we are entering the mission field. This nation is going to hell. We have a message that's going to recover the nation. A harvest of Bible teaching to feed the churches and the masses. And the healing of lives, the turning back of darkness, the reestablishment of our Judeo-Christian heritage, the fear of God, the law of God, the gospel of God, the life of God in the soul of man. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, go home, watch that video segment listed in the bulletin. Because one of the reasons we don't gather together to pray is that we don't believe that God can do what he did for previous generations. Let me tell you about the Methodist revival of the 18th century. Stretched from about 1737 through much of the century. Why was the British Isles spared the bloodshed of the French Revolution? It was because God raised up a John Wesley. It was because God raised up a George Whitfield, whose statue is now going to be taken down by the University of Pennsylvania. Why did deism not take over the British Isles? Because evangelicals came along, revived with an orthodox view of Christianity, and says, no, God is present and active in history. And so by the 19th century, four-time British Prime Minister William Gladstone could say, at the height of Britain's power, ruling a third of the world, this nation stands upon the rock of Holy Scripture. And Britain's fortunes, and now we'll see America's fortunes, rise and fall with the health of the Christian church. We don't co-opt this text and say, God has promised to heal America. As if America has become God's chosen people equivalent to the tribes of Israel. We tried that in Britain. This is for the church. And what God is saying to the church is this. When my people gather together to pray, pouring out their hearts for the nation as it is, and they look not first and foremost about what's wrong with the president, what's wrong with the Democrats, when we look first of all, what's wrong with us? Why have 30 million Christians lost consistently so many battles? I will hear from you, will the church be? I will forgive the sins of the church. And no longer will the church be defeated. But you know, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise lies not in space, time, and history. The theme of the land finds its fulfillment in the new earth to come. A new earth wherein righteousness dwells, after which the church will never sin again.
And so what's the conclusion of the sermon? Well, it's found verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Little Farms Chapel is no more the temple of God in terms of a structure than any other Christian church. But together we are the temple of God, a habitation of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says to us through his word, now my eyes will be open, my ears open, to see and to hear the prayers that are made in this place. Let us not be covenant breakers, brothers and sisters, but obedient to the covenant because we love the Lord our God and we are crying out within, as I believe so many of you are, that God would be glorified in our day. That video piece, Can This Happen Again? Yes, it can. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's not always easy to hear it. It's not always easy to work it out. It's so much easier to trot out a mantra than to heed the call to earnest prayer for the land. Your eyes are in this place. Your ears are in this place. Help us to transfer your word heard to your word acted upon. And we claim your promises that you are the inspirer and hearer of prayer. And so we are asking that these 30 million Christians in America, given the weapons, the spiritual weapons of preaching and prayer, may yet be used in your hand to turn back the nation. And it is in Jesus Christ for the honor of his name and the salvation of multitudes that we ask these things. Amen.